This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cuckoo writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Curran Gakani to the podcast today. Curran is the co-founder and creative director at Hoppers, a Sri Lankan restaurant concept that now has three sites in London, including the latest which opened in King's Cross in 2020. He's also the author of Hoppers the Cookbook, which has just been published this month, packed with inspiring stories, recipes and lots of detail to really bring Sri Lankan cooking to life. Welcome, Curran. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me here, Janine. It's so exciting being in the studio and finally putting a face to that voice. <laughs> I've heard so much of your material okay. on Spotify. I hope I can live up to it. Um, can we start with you telling us a little bit about the Hopper's story and how you came to write the book? So our first Hopper's restaurant opened on Frit Street um, in London, Soho in 2015. And the inspiration there really was, you know, Toddy shops, the little shacks and homes of Sri Lanka and South India. So I know people always talk about us as being a Sri Lankan restaurant, but we're equally South Indian. A large part of our team is South Indian. I myself come from India, from Mumbai, which is neither South India or Sri Lanka, but I've spent a lot of my time researching these two lovely, lovely regions, which is rich with amazing food. Hopper Soho was really, uh, was born out of a desire to bring this incredible cuisine and food that we love. And when I say we, it's my wife, her brothers, who founded JKS Restaurants. Yeah. So they've got a group of restaurants now, and then I joined them. And the K in JKS is Karam, my brother-in-law. Uh, he's got an M at the end. I have an N at the end of my name. And we started talking about this at, at my wedding. 
and he had Sri Lankan friends growing up. I had Sri Lankan friends through university. I'd now been there a few times. Coincidentally, even proposed to my wife in Sri Lanka on holiday there, well before Hoppers was even conceived. And we said, look, we want to bring this food in a in a manner which is you know exciting, fun, contemporary, and really sort of gives it the the attention it 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 deserves. So the chat slowly became into more serious research, and then this site on Fritz Street came about. Tiny little room, only forty seats, and we just went in there. All of us were on the floor in the kitchens working. Uh, we got an amazing team to start with us, a lot of whom are still with us today, especially the kitchen team. And before we knew it, things just blew up. We literally, we didn't do reservations and we thought we might struggle to fill it sometimes, but we had a queue out the door in week two. We were very fortunate to get some great reviews. And I think I stood in the door there for about two years. So people even <laughs> come back today, they said, yeah, we went in the early days and we weren't given a table. And I was like, I was probably the one who was telling you to come back three yeah. hours later and you decided not to. Um, but it was an incredible journey. And I think in putting together that first restaurant, I learned so much about being a restaurateur because I am a qualified lawyer and I've worked in the city for a while. I always loved restaurants, always passionate about them, but you suddenly see things from a very different point of view. And the one big lesson I've learned is that, you know, people often think from the outside world, oh, creating a restaurant is about having this having this menu or having a secret recipe. Yes, it is about having great recipes and a very strong menu because that's a given, but actually it's everything around it. So it's almost, I would say the food is only about 30%. 70% is the overall experience, but did you get a smile across the room? What was the temperature like? What's the music like? And I call that the restaurant magic. Yeah. I train the team, you know, we have, you know, very detailed training sessions on on, on hospitality versus service, on these little touch points that often guests don't even think about when they walk into a restaurant. So design became really important. And in fact, you know, we went and sourced this tile from Sri Lanka. We found a tile in Sri Lanka, loved it, sourced it from Italy, and it's in our, on our floors in Soho. I've used the same tile, the design of the border in our book and when you do buy a copy, and I'm hoping everyone listening today is going <laughs> to buy a copy, uh, you will find there's a lovely colored ribbon in the book, yeah. as well as this tile motif on the cover. And just as that tile borders your experience at Hopper's Soho, I wanted the same design, which has become so special to us, to border your experience in the book. So in many ways, design, every touch point, little thought, thoughtfulness of your experience becomes so important in the restaurants. And, you know, it followed us in Marlebone and King's Cross. We kind of took that ethic and it was very important to work with a very strong designer who, you know, we got along very well with. And Luke Bird, who was a designer on this book, is now one of my very, very close friends. We have spent late nights WhatsApping each other and <laughs> going over little elements of the design. And he was so accommodating. But honestly, I can't think of anyone who would have brought my vision to life in yeah. a better way than Luke yeah. and contributed so much of his own. So it's not just my vision. Yeah. And the photography, similarly, is done by Ryan, who's like my little brother from Sri Lanka. He's been shooting us and me for the last four or five years, traveling around Sri Lanka. I'm so proud of what we've, uh, you know, what we've created here because it's much more than just a, a collection of recipes. Mm, for sure. When you flick through the book, no two pages look the same. Mm. You know, it's not just recipe photo. There's different layouts in there. There's travel features. And I've been able to capture a lot of my friends in there as well. So it's almost like the hopper's journey that yeah. we've had for five years and where we look forward to in the future 
it's almost like capturing that in the book, like as if it was my scrapbook from all my travels and tales of Sri Lanka. Lovely. I absolutely love that. And I, and it is, as you said, it's absolutely jam-packed full of information and tips and not just recipes, but the stories and the photographs. Um, and we'll probably touch on that as we as we go through the podcast. But you did you did mention something there that you wanted to to touch on, which was um, you know Sri Lanka in relation to Indian food because it is quite unique. But obviously, it's so close to India as well. Tell us a bit about that. So, as I was saying earlier, I grew up in Mumbai, mm. and I had a very close grand uncle who's from South India, from Tamil Nadu. He was a bachelor all his life, and he would just land up at home. We called him Tatun. He'd land up at home with a bag full of really weird and wacky ingredients, which he'd go off to this South Indian store and buy. Yeah. And I remember those meals being incredible. We would be on this table. Usually you'd have some someone or the other fighting on the dinner table or, you know, <laughs> us as children complaining about what's been made for dinner. But with him, he had this way of bringing in three generations, my grandmother, my parents, and my brother and me and him and he just straddled all of them and everyone would get along and we'd have the best laughs. And when I look back, yes, it was about the food, but it was also those experiences where everyone's laughing that was so important. So somehow my happiest food experience was South Indian, which then got me in later life to travel a lot around the region, okay. learn a lot more about it. And then suddenly at university, I met my first Sri Lankan friend. His name's Aritha. We were both studying law. We were in our dorm kitchen and he walked up to me, very friendly guy, walks up to me and he says, oh, what are you cooking? So I said, I'm cooking a biryani. He said, oh, you mean a biryani? I said, really? What's, what's a biryani? He's saying, oh, we call it a biryani. I'm from Sri Lanka. And then we got chatting. He ended up tasting some of it. Yeah. And I think that year we might have cooked for an average of 15 people yeah. at least four times a week together. <laughs> but I learned so much from him, from his friends, his mm. mother who came to you know, stay with us for a little while as we were students. Another friend of us, Rishini, who was also there. And through these two, I connected with so many people. And I think there's definitely something in my stars and Sri Lanka that I found this you know, years down. I've got more friends in Colombo today than I've in any other city in the world, despite never having lived there. And every yeah. time I meet someone, there's just this instant connection. Yeah. So in terms of the food, what was unique was the fact that it was similar, but still very different. Yes. Yeah. And now it's very, it's not unfair to classify Sri Lankan food really as a generic Sri Lankan food because they've had so many different cultural influences, whether it's the Dutch burger food, some of the best food you'll find, uh, you know, recipes for the lump rice in here. One of my favorite dishes. It's like a banana leaf parcel with various curries and rice. It's almost like a packed lunch wow. in a banana leaf. Yeah. Um, or you have the Jaffna food, which is closer to South India, right. very spicy. That for me is the most similar in terms of um, in terms of the spices used and the style of cooking. You've got the Sinhalese food, which is very very unique, and then you've got the Malay the Malay influenced food, mm -hmm. which has things like pandan leaves and lemongrass in it. So. It's a real mix of different cuisines. And I find that, you know, when you travel to the south of Sri Lanka, it's almost like taking influences from Thailand or Malaysia. Oh, okay. And mixing them with South Indian food. Yeah. So, yes, there's coconut, there's curry leaf, there's fenugreek, there's cinnamon, cardamom, clove, ginger garlic, banana, which mm. is very common to what we do. But then there are subtle nuances which actually change the cuisine quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, completely. So, so same ingredients, but just completely different methods and ways of using it. Certainly different ingredients. ingredients. Yeah. So we might use a kokum in India, whereas they use a goraka, which is a slightly yeah. harder, smokier version. 
they use moldy fish chips, which yeah. are phenomenal. Uh, great for umami. Um, almost like bonito. Yeah. Uh, so it's the same fish, but it's dried and cut, broken up into little chips. And they use that in the sambals for this really amazing umami-rich flavor in the background. And like I said, there's a lot of pandan and uh, lemongrass, which I've not seen used as much in South yeah. India. And you've got a nice little glossary in the front of the book that explains all of those ingredients as well. Because I know the Maldive fish flakes, you said it's quite a, um, it's such a particular flavor that if you really want to go down the authentic Sri Lankan route, you should try and get a hold of something, some of them to kind of take it, you know, your sambals and stuff to the next level. Absolutely. I think Maldive fish is almost like fish sauce in Thai yeah. food. Very, very important. I do suggest using that. If you really can't find Maldive fish chips, you can mm. use a little bit of fish sauce. Um, but the glossary was really important for me because that's how we learned cooking. Firstly, understanding the nuances of the different ingredients. Yeah. And I wanted to share that with the readers because not everyone would be um, familiar with Sri Lankan or Indian food. And I wanted this to be for, for, to set the stage, really, yeah. and explain to people what you're going to be using, what the substitutions are. And it's almost like the science. This is how I approach food. There's a science behind cooking because you teach a person that science behind it. And then that gives them the, the tools and the ability to freestyle a little bit. Mm. So we've spent 42 pages of the book just on ingredients, photographing them against each other. Um, the onions, for example, or tomato or chili. Yeah. You know, onions and not onions. And this is something I learned earlier yeah, on. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that because you um, there are actually pictures of the chilies and the onions because you wanted to be clear about which onions you ideally should be using. We might not be able to get a hold of them. But yeah, tell us about that. So it's, it's exactly that. It's, you know, we want to show it to you. But then we're also fully aware of the fact that this book is going to be with people far away from mainstream cities or from ethnic stores. So how do you substitute and what do you think about? So if you think about the onion, each onion has a different sugar content yeah. and a different spice level. So a white Spanish onion can be a lot sweeter and it will brown very differently from, say, a Bombay or Indian onion, yeah. which is how it's referred to, the purplish onion, which is spicier, which has an amazing flavor around it. Then you've got the red onion versus the brown onion on your supermarket shelves. I, I suggest you try this as an experiment. Yeah. Just go to your supermarket, buy two onions, cook the same recipes if you've got the time to do it, or just slice them up and try them. Mm. And you'll see the flavor. There's a distinct, there's a difference in the flavor of the two. They're not just different colors. Yeah. So, yes, there will be times when you don't have a choice and you've only got the one. But if you knew that, okay, one is sweeter than the other, this is going to brown slower, then you can add a touch of sugar to the other one or brown it slightly differently or just balance the rest of your recipe to expect the difference. And that's what we've tried to do. It's the same thing with tomatoes. Tomatoes in India or, or Sri Lanka are always quite tart. So okay. not, they're not like the Italian tomatoes, which are super sweet, mm. sun-ripe. So when we cook with them, they often give a lovely sourness to a curry. Whereas you do the same thing with tinned Italian tomatoes or even fresh, right. ripe Italian tomatoes, and you'll have a sweet curry. Yeah. You do that with British tomatoes and it'll taste of nothing. Yeah. Especially most of the year when you get <laughs> yeah. the, the stuff that looks red but is rock it's hard not, and yeah, tastes yeah. of nothing. So <laughs> yeah, again, we're good at that. <laughs> you know, but um, again, as long as you can, you know how to substitute them, yeah. maybe use a little less if you have to use a tin tomato mm. and you understand the science behind it, I feel you can cook the recipes. And again, a recipe book, a cookbook, I read them in bed, Yeah, should not only be about that cuisine. No. If I can give you 10 tips that you can apply to Indian food or even more generally 
to other cuisines, I've given you something that you'll never forget. For sure, yeah. Let's talk about another um, vital ingredient in Sri Lankan cooking, which is the coconut. And it has so many uses, doesn't it? How long do we have in this podcast? Because uh-huh. I can go on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, we have a joke between our team. I think I've written more articles on coconuts. Oh, than really? I've written on okay, anything well, else. we need to hear this but then. Come on. <laughs> I, it's, you know, it's integral. We've got it front and center of our yeah. cover as well. Uh, the coconut tree in gold. But it's just such an essential and such an unbelievable tree. Firstly, visually, the minute you see one, you're transported to a beach. I'm transported to home, wherever that might be, Sri Lanka, India. And it just gives you a sense of calm. Then you go on to the uses, all the way from the flower, which is snipped at the end. There's this amazing sap collected into into a pot, and that's known as toddy. Oh, yeah. Now, toddy is almost like the Sri Lankan or South Indian beer. People queue up for it. It's this white milky spirit, white milky liquid, actually, that comes out of the fruit. It's collected in these pots. Almost in a couple of hours, it's, there's this natural fermentation, yeah. almost like yogurt or like sourdough, which creates a little bit of alcohol. Okay. And it's just drunk alongside some of the tastiest food. So toddy is quite light then, because it might... because Well, when it you depends on when you pick it up. Oh, okay, I see. So I it was can be anything from 2% to... 12% in the evening, oh, it becomes right. vinegar very quickly. Oh, okay. And it, and it naturally ferments. This it's is gorgeous. Natural... Yeah, because of all the maggots. So you sit on a toddy plantation, and this is the first yeah. thing I do when I land in Sri Lanka. Yeah. We've, got a, we've got lovely photos in the book about it. We've even got a QR code which takes you there with us. Um, it, it's just, it literally will come to you in a jug. Yeah. You then sieve it into a bottle or into a pitcher, and then you pour it for each other. And you, get, you collect the maggots and... All the other wildlife in there, yeah. in that sieve, because it's just straight off the tree, straight off the tree into this pot onto your table. So it's like wild fermentation as well. It's unbelievable. Wow. Um, and then that, along with some of the dishes like fried fish or the special fish head yeah. curries and cassava and, th- and the sambals that are cooked alongside it, you traditionally, is just a phenomenal meal. So now you've got that toddy, which is then distilled into arak which is probably the most common spirit in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And it's definitely the most common spirit at, at any of our bars. I've heard that you make a good cocktail out of our rack. We've got quite a few of them in here. <laughs> there uh, a few it can be lethal sometimes. <laughs> there were some sore heads after your uh, book launch party in our office. Luckily, you missed People that. The, the lychee, For this reason. Yeah, the lychee arak cocktail, I yes. think it was, yeah. which went down too well. <laughs> yeah, It's a great spirit. It's yeah. a bit like rum. Yeah. So that's the spirit. Then you've got the actual fruit, yeah. which you can use the, the husk to make coir ropes. Mm. You can use the leaves to make thatched roofs. The fruit itself, you can drink the water as natural. As the flesh gets harder and harder, you then scrape it off and you've got grated coconut. You can dry that out to make desiccated coconut. And we all know what the uses are. Again, buy the book. There are hundreds of recipes in there with <laughs> coconut. Um and then even the shells are used to make spoons and bowls and things like that. So it's a perfect coconut example. oil, which yeah. is used in a lot of our cooking. Mm. Even give my boys, I've got two boys at home, we give them a massage with coconut oil. Yeah. It's great in the hair. Um, so, I mean, the uses are endless and I'm sure I've forgotten about 20 of them. Yeah. But you can Google Karan Dokani and coconut and you will find a lot of information yes. out there. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Hoppers, the name of your restaurant, the name of your book, and one of the most famous um, dishes in the whole of Sri Lanka, I guess. And yeah, I know, again, this is probably a bit like coconut. You could probably give me three hours on hoppers, but... Um. Uh, how, what are we, two and a half yeah. hours down? I have half an hour left. Great. But yeah, um, I know you've got some things to say about the science of them. So let's, let's talk about them. I think we learned it the hard way. So hoppers, um, I've said this God knows how many hundred times, that hoppers <laughs> are bowl-shaped pancakes yeah. made with fermented coconut and rice. Um, swirled in a in a little wok, yeah. cooked over live fire, and they'll crisp on the edges and soft in the middle. That's the blurb. Now, what really? What are they really? <laughs> um, they are this pancake. I mean, I'm using pancake for lack of a better term. Yeah. But they are this pancake that is very, very common in Sri Lanka at all times of day, particularly breakfast and dinner. Mm. You walk around the streets of Sri Lanka anywhere in Sri Lanka in the morning and you'll see these little stalls, these guys standing there making four at a time, juggling these little pans and then they have stacks of hoppers on top. Some of them have eggs in them, some of them have coconut milk in them and some of them are plain. And then you'll see people just walking by, buying one or two of them with a sambal on the side, just dipping it into a coconut sambal and that's their breakfast and it's delicious. Mm. We, You can then eat them for dinner and that's how we eat them with curries at mealtimes. Okay. And I find them a great bread to dip into curries and to have to dip into little samples on the side. In terms of why the session with the word hoppers, um, it was a working title for the restaurant when we first started conceptualizing it. A great name. My brother-in-law came up with it. And um, it just stuck because we think it's got this amazing ring to it. It's a single word. It's something people can actually pronounce easily. And also associate with, but there's still that element of intrigue yeah, in that name. Yeah. But what ended up happening is we ended up shooting ourselves in the foot because <laughs> people would walk into this 40-seat restaurant where we were just finding our feet and they'd say, oh, we have to have a hopper because that's your name. But equally, there was a dosa on the menu, there was yeah. a roti, there was a biryani, all <laughs> of which were fantastic. You ask me, my go-to bread of choice is a chili cheese dosa any day. God, I love yes. a hopper at certain <laughs> times of the day, but a chili cheese dosa for me is my yeah. biggest weakness. And we try our hardest to sell them this. Mm. And we say, listen, have a dosa instead, just because our kitchen's going down. <laughs> <laughs> but they would still want a hopper. And I yeah. remember in our second week of opening, we were still trying to understand why these hoppers, one day they'd stick to the pan, one day they wouldn't, one day they'd be yeah. brown, one day they'd be white. Because we were learning about it. Imagine opening a sourdough bakery yeah. after having just done a little bit of sourdough testing in your house and sourdough testing for a few friends and suddenly you blow up and you need a thousand loaves a day. 
So it was a bit like that. Yeah. You know, Bonnie will be able to tell you how that feels. <laughs> uh, but with us and Hoppers, we, had, we kind of got it right. We got our batter and we would make them. But there was one chef in our kitchen who made them perfectly. Really? And when he started making them perfectly, he was always on that section. I remember we were only open five days a week to begin, but still 10 shifts. And after about eight shifts, one day he's like, I have to go and pick up my daughter from school at a lunch shift. And I remember him leaving, <laughs> him, him not being there for service. And suddenly these orders flying in, hopper, 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 hopper. And the other guy who was on shift that day just got really nervous and they started sticking. Oh. And then we had to go out and get everyone who ordered a hopper to say, actually, you should have a dosa instead. What we could have done is just given them dosas because no one at that point knew what a hopper was. <laughs> <laughs> but... That was the story. And then obviously we've mastered the art since. We've got a lot of people in our kitchens who can make it. But yeah. what it did teach us was the science of a hopper. Okay. It's, again, like bread, very simple base recipe. And you've got coconut. You've got a little touch of yeast. You've got rice, a special kind of rice, and a touch of salt and sugar. That's it. You allow them to sort of ferment overnight. You, Firstly, you soak them, then you grind them, you allow them to ferment with a little bit of yeast so they get nice and bubbly, and then you've got to catch them at the right time. Okay. Because if you allow it to over-ferment, it's going to stick to your pan. Yeah. If it's not fermented enough, it's not going to have the bubbles. So it's all about understanding it and playing so with it and getting yeah. the timing right, temperature right. In summer, it's a little different from winter. So it is a live product or a live batter. The dosa, on the other hand, is a similar batter made with lentils and rice, but that's not life, so it's a little easier to deal with. Okay. And now when you make this hopper, you make it, imagine you've got a thick pancake batter, which you then put into an aluminium wok, like a mini wok. Yeah. That's heated up perfectly. Dry wok, there's no oil in there. You put this in and you swirl it around so the batter sticks. And then you place the wok back onto the, onto the burner, put a little lid on top. If you like, crack an egg in the middle, then put a lid on top. And what that does is it cooks it perfectly. So because the batter sort of swirled off the sides and into oh, the yeah. middle, it's collected and pooled and it's nice and bubbly. And on the edges, it's really lovely and crisp. So, so you've you got get your thin like frilly little edges edge, on exactly. the edges. Yeah. But now if that wok was too cold, mm. it's going to stick and never come off. And then you've got to send it for a wash, which takes a while, bring it back, re-season it, which is heating and cooling and rubbing yeah. a little bit of oil, heating and cooling, which takes a long time. Under pressure takes an even longer time. Um, <laughs> so the alternative is to use a non-stick pan, but a non-stick pan will never give you the crunch yeah. that you know an iron wok or an aluminium wok would give you. So the right pan, the right temperature, the right amount of fermentation, and the right recipe for the batter, it's all in the book. And, and do you feel <laughs> like you've cracked it now? Do you feel like... I'm still very nervous yeah. doing it. <laughs> So I would never do it on live TV. Yeah. Or I'd do it on live radio because you wouldn't know what's, what it's turning out yeah. to be. But you, but would, you would never man the, um, the hopper station in one of your restaurants? No, no. <laughs> Even in an emergency, I'm sure you could do a good job. <laughs> I, I would jump in, but I think they know better than to call me. Oh, They've God. got their back up already. <laughs> um, let's talk about curry and Sri Lanka. It's fascinating that having grown up in India, apart from the word curry leaf, mm. never really hear a word curry. As Gujaratis, I'm Gujarati, and as Gujaratis, we have a curry, which is a yogurt-based curry, but it's pronounced and spelled K-A-D-H-I. Oh, okay. It's a specific dish, and maybe it derives its name from the from the word curry. Yeah. And there's a Tamil word called curry, K-A-R-I, and we, in fact, you know, there's a little playful trick. We put that on our menu. Yeah. We actually call all our curries curry. 
we even launch a brand called Hopper's Cash and Carry yeah. or Curry. Um, but it's not a word that's commonly used or associated with a genre of food the way it is over here. Mm. Here, obviously, it's very wide. It can incorporate anything. But the word curry, when you study the history of it, is a Tamil term that meant a sort of dish with a little bit of sauce in it and a spice dish. Um, I'm not going to claim I know the history of the word. But what's very interesting is that when I went to Sri Lanka for the first time, um, I did hear the word used to describe their curry powders. So they mm. do have curry powders, which they refer to as curry powders. It's almost like the Thai curry pastes. Yeah. So there is a specific Thai curry paste and there are specific roasted, unroasted, jaffna and a few others um, curry powders in Sri Lanka. So there was the word curry used there. And I think that was the, the fun. We've got hundreds of different curries across India. Yeah. And, and likewise, in Sri Lanka, there's all these different curries. But the word curry really is only used for leaves or these three curry powders. And yeah. apart from that, I don't really know any sort of places in which uh, you would find that yeah. word used. And you've got lots in the book, haven't you? And you've got, I mean, there's there's definitely specific, as in there's black curries and there's yes. white curries. What is yes. the difference between... Those? So Sri Lanka has... Um, Sri Lanka has the, the curry powders. Yeah. And like that, they've also got the, the white curry, the red curry, and a black curry. Right, They're three okay. different kinds of curries, yeah. generically. But then within them, each it's household makes ones, it a little yeah. differently, and there are minor nuances between them. For me, the black pork curry is one of my favorite curries. It's an amazing curry where you've got this, this toasted curry powder that's made with roasted rice, with, with chilies and coconut. And on top, you've got a roasted curry powder, and it's incredible. Wow. Um, the red chicken curry is one of my favorite chicken curries. It was one of the most basic curries you would eat there. It's a standard curry there. It's the first thing I teach in any demo or entry-level 101 Sri Lankan class. Um, and the white curries are the slightly milder curries okay. that won't have as much curry powder, but a few spices in there. Again, akin to the green or red curry in Thailand. Is the, does the black... Is that about the depth of flavor and color that you get into it? It's almost like a deep roasted coffee. Oh, so it's roasted, in a sense. yeah. So, so you roast the curry powder and you roast okay. the other ingredients. Like I said, the rice, it's really interesting. They use rice they use in that. They use basmati rice ground. You could use a short grain or a, a basmati grain, rice. Yeah. You roast it till it gets really nutty oh, and dark, yeah, okay. along with coconut yeah. and with chili. And then you grind them till it becomes this coffee-like deep smelling powder which you then add to the curry. And because of that roasted coconut, it also thickens the curry. Yeah. So it's got an amazing, amazing um, depth of flavor. And it's so unique. In fact, the black pork curry was one of the first curries I had in Sri Lanka that just completely blew me away. And it was so distinct from anything in India that it solidified in my yeah. head the fact that this country has a very different cuisine. Yeah. Because otherwise you have coconut-based curries that are similar or there's minor nuances to chicken curries. But when I had that in the first week of visiting Sri Lanka, I was like, wow, this is Spot brilliant. And this is on. so different from anything I've ever eaten before. And did you put that on your menu? We took a long time researching it and getting the recipe right. Mm. And we proudly had it on our menu from day one. Did you? And it's now even in the book. Amazing. <laughs> I'm going to definitely make that one. What would be your favorite recipe to cook from the book if you were cooking for family if you could choose, if you could very, choose only one of your babies, what very, very difficult <laughs> question. But it depends on time of day. It depends oh, on it? who I'm cooking for. For dinner, say dinner for friends, just a gang of friends coming around. I'm gonna choose the lump rice, okay, or a biryani. Okay, <laughs> I think a biryani is a great dish. It is. And the reason I've asked, I've chosen both of those, is because they are great recipes to make ahead. 
They involve a lot of work, so it doesn't look like you've shirked and just given your friends a quick yeah. five-minute meal, <laughs> which they might not mind, but I mind. I yeah. like to put the effort in. Uh, but they allow you to have great fun at the party. Yeah. And they're real showstoppers. Showstoppers as well. You so want that to bring think. a biryani in. Yeah. You can make it in advance, layer it all up, keep it ready, stick it into the oven or onto a slow hob. Bring it on the table, unwrap Pack it. it. You need nothing ad- apart from a little bowl of yogurt <laughs> yeah. on the side, and it'll still blow people away. And everyone's going to be like, oh, amazing. We do that all the time. Yeah. Like a biryani night is is big in our house. And that and my wife knows that's the only time when I'm not stressed out and I'm not running around trying to get 20 things ready. And there isn't tons of washing up as well. Yeah, that's great. Lump price is one step further because it's in a banana leaf, so there's no plate required as well. You could yeah. eat straight off nice. the banana leaf and dump it into the bin. I love that. I'm going to look that up. Um, and lastly, you were going to tell us about something that you've been involved with, um, which is your charitable campaign, Feed in the Future. Um, what, tell us about that. So, Janine, I don't know how much you've been following the situation in Sri Lanka over yeah. the past year, uh, but it's really heartbreaking. Um, this is a country that I feel has shown more resilience than any other country I know, that I know. I'm sure there are others. They had the Easter bombings all the war and that history apart, but in 2019 when the country was booming, tourism was booming, and tourism is a big part of what drives income into the country and a big part of um, their economics. In 2019, in April, they had the Easter bombings, which just meant that they lost their entire season. And I've got very close Italian friends, and I know how much it hurt. Um, they then managed to get back on their feet, and they had a booming Jan Feb march only to lock down in 2020 like the rest of us. They reopened and it was amazing seeing messages pour into me personally. I got so jealous because all these friends would message me from the airport saying, oh, by the way, we're just off to Sri Lanka. Can you send me some tips? And I was like, I, I, I really want to be there. I even made it in Feb this year. Yeah. Um, I was there in December last year, in November last year for the book as well. Um, but they had people coming back and then suddenly the whole economic, the political situation blew up. And we are sitting in the middle of one, of a crazy political situation here so we can sense what it feels like, but this was much, much worse. And thanks to that political situation, there was a, you know, there was a big economic impact. They were left bankrupt because of the previous government. And as always happens in situations like this, it was the people at the bottom that really suffered the most. So there were tons of protests and the whole country united and it was amazing to see. But despite that unity what was bound to happen is that there's going to be lasting poverty coming out of this. Uh, And it was heartbreaking to watch. So from here, we said we want to do all we can. We want to find a way to really support it rather than just sending out political messages, something we never, you know, get into. Because we're a restaurant, we want to bring smiles and faces and that's all we want to do. Um, So I spoke to some friends in Sri Lanka and then we ended up tying up with a large conglomerate over there. It's called Hema's. Phenomenal, phenomenal organization. I know the family behind it. I have huge respect. And they're one of the most respected families in Sri Lanka. They have an outreach foundation. We tied up with them. They work with schools already. They've got a big network of schools across the country. And we chose six of the poorest schools because we could afford to support them. We created a budget and basically agreed to send rations for a month to every single person in that school including teachers, because we didn't want to differentiate. We didn't want to choose, pick and choose. We said if a school's getting it, everyone needs to get it. And the rations are enough for a family of four to last them about a month. 
the, the list of rations in that sack is made by a nutritionist who has studied what the children need, looks at what's available locally and gives them that. So whether it's nutritious biscuits or coconut milk powder or certain other things, lentils, um, it's all in there, grains. And to get these bags to people, these sacks to people, we, Hemas and us, tied up with Cargills, which is like the, like the Tesco's of, of Sri Lanka, a huge supermarket chain who has the network. So we have, they have agreed to sell us wholesale. We tell them at the beginning of the month, actually, they know how many students they're supplying, how many families they're supplying to. And I think that at last count, we did about 360 or 370 families. So they supply all the rations and they send the rations to the closest Cargill's food city. So we pay nothing for logistics. We pay nothing for volunteers because it's all part of Hema's Outreach Foundation. So every penny you contribute from here goes yeah. directly to those rations. And we're on track now to have raised about 100,000 pounds by the end of this year. So I'm very, very proud of that. We've done that because of support of our guests. The people who come and dine in are asked to leave a pound on the bill. We've got a chicken biryani for the last six, seven months, a platter on the menu for about 20 pounds. Every single penny goes to charity, this charity. And we've done a bunch of other events. So now basically people can come in and eat and, and give at the same time. So we are great. giving, yeah. a lot of people are contributing. Some yeah. people top the one pound up. Some people, we've got a just giving page. So if you look at hopperslondon.com, yep. there's a whole page on feeding the future. You can click on the link and actually give on there. And there've been tons of people who've done that as well. The best part is we have become this platform that's, or a voice for Sri Lanka in this country without ever expecting to become. And that's a huge responsibility. But it's also a huge privilege. And I think from the beginning, we always wanted to create a charity that we are really closely connected to. And I'm so excited about this because I think this is a charity that we will always, always be a part of. And I can genuinely put my neck out there and say, we know who we are working with. There's very little money. Um, actually, there's no money being wasted on the logistics and the admin. It's all getting to people. So if you're inclined towards supporting Sri Lanka or this charity, this is a great way of passing it through. Um, and I'm hoping that next year we can multiply the 100,000 to many multiples of that, reach many more schools. And eventually the dream would be to do a midday meal program the way Marcus, Tom Kerridge and Jamie have done over here yeah. in schools across the board, yeah. teaching students, teaching their families about nutrition, yeah. about healthy eating, because that's when the brain works better. That's when these children will teach their children. That's when the children might go back and teach their parents sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we call it Feeding the Future. And for me, this is a huge part of what Hoppers is going to be in the future. That's great. It's such a great initiative. And the fact that people can come and eat in Hoppers and contribute to that. Um, and then they can buy your book and and basically read all of those stories and really feel like they've you know, got an insight into the country as well. It, it's lovely. But um, thank you so much for coming to chat to us today, Karen. I've loved I feel, it. I feel like I've learned so much. Um, thank you, Janine. I've loved being here. And if you want to follow more of our Hopper's journey, you can find us on social media, Instagram at Hopper's London. I personally go by at Karen Cooks. We're chatting about the book, but there's a lot more about Sri Lanka, the restaurants, recipes, 
And you can always ask us questions there. We love answering them. Can't wait to see what you're cooking out of it. I've made some recipes from the book and they are gorgeous. I've actually made the um, the devil paneer and the lemon rice at the weekend. But I'm also looking at your hot butter squid, which sounds incredible. Love those dishes, yeah. Yeah. Um, the book's called Hop as a Cookbook and it's out now. Um, so people can go get that. But yeah, thanks again for coming to chat to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.